so we're in this uh, teaching series. Man, we are deep into this. This is the longest teaching series I've ever done, and uh, we're several months into it now. And we're, the series is called Emotionally Healthy. This series is about becoming an emotionally healthy church made up of emotionally healthy people. And we've said that one of the reasons that we believe this is important is because uh, Jesus was an emotional being and Jesus was emotionally healthy. So then, part of the process of becoming more like Jesus is to become more and more emotionally mature and emotionally healthy. So we started this series back in uh, early, late winter, early spring, asking this question, what if all of our emotions are places to meet with God? And what if God is already there waiting for us? We've covered a bunch of topics, some of them pretty challenging uh, so far in this series, and I really feel like we're beginning to wrap this up and I'm finding a place to land this thing. But my prayer for all of us in this series has been, uh, for all of us as individuals, as married couples, as households and families, for us as a church, is that God would bring us to a place of emotional maturity and emotional health as we follow Jesus. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we invite you into this place this morning. May your Holy Spirit uh, anoint all of our efforts today. I pray that you'd give us uh, clear uh, minds and open hearts to the truth of your word this morning. And uh, I just pray that you would continue the work in us that you've already begun. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, a couple weeks ago, uh, we talked about anxiety and depression. And we said that this would probably be uh, the closer for this series, but that it might be in two or three parts. So this is like part B of part 13, all right? So if you're, if you're keeping track. So I said that since we've been talking about emotional health for nearly six months now, it wouldn't be intellectually honest to talk about emotional health for all this time without talking about anxiety and depression. So we decided to tackle this topic. Um, so just as a disclaimer, and I said this a couple weeks ago, and I just need to remind you, I'm not a doctor. I'm not a therapist. I'm not a psychologist. I'm not a psychiatrist, none of that. I'm a follower of Jesus. I've been leading in the church in a pastoral role for nearly 30 years. And I've tried to learn from people who have personal experience from, with these kinds of things, either working through it themselves or guiding other people through it. And so I want this to be helpful, but I'm not going to offer uh, a silver bullet or a magic cure-all or any kind of formula today. All right, so I just want to offer that as my disclaimer. So to start things off, first off, I just want to go back and remind you of something we said a couple weeks ago. That when we're talking about anxiety and depression... You just have to know this, you are not alone. And when I said that a couple weeks ago, a lot of heads went like this. Because if you think that somehow you're the only one, you need to know that in this room this morning, you're not the only one. Have you ever felt like you're the only one on the planet dealing with anxiety and depression? I mean, maybe, well, maybe not on the planet, but for sure in the church, right? Because there's a stigma attached, like Christians are supposed to be happy all the time. And we, you know, we, we sing a couple slow songs and then sing some faster songs and we clap and then we're, it's all good. We've, we've kind of, yeah, reduced it to that. 
So we talked about the reality of the numbers, the statistics about anxiety and depression. And then and we talked about it as it relates to uh, those of us in the church. And then we talked about some examples from the Bible. So we talked about some people like Job and David and Elijah. And we even talked about Jesus. And then we talked about a couple different uh, approaches to addressing, addressing anxiety and depression. And we leaned heavily into the idea that for the most part, anxiety and depression are symptoms of something that's going on beneath the surface. And that, yes, sometimes... We need medication to help with some clarity, but in conjunction with that, we need to be willing to get into a process where we are kind of doing emotional surgery, where we're exploring what's going on under the surface. Now, sometimes words can be fuzzy. Uh, Words mean different things to different people depending on background and context and language and all, all that. So we need to pin down exactly what we mean today by anxiety and depression. So let me give you a couple definitions, okay? So what is anxiety? First of all, for the purpose of our discussion in this setting, anxiety is a feeling of worry, nervousness, or unease, typically about an imminent event or something with an uncertain outcome. And then secondly, just the next step in this definition, and maybe the next step experientially, is a nervous disorder. And it's characterized by a state of excessive uneasiness and apprehension, typically with compulsive behavior and or panic attack. Let me just say this. Some bad feelings are, uh, are actually healthy. I'll give you an example. Well, pain is one, all right? You... Like, for those of you who were at the, the family retreat yesterday and we ended the day around a campfire, you stick your, you stick your hand into the fire to, to rescue the marshmallow that dropped off the stick. I'm not saying that that would happen with all the kids there or anything, but uh, pain is a good sensation because it protects you. Fear is one of those things that we often attach, even the song we just sang, we attach a, a negative to it, but it's not all negative. Like, for instance... You, uh, if you're hiking, let's say you're, you've never been hiking before and you decide that be, this would be a good weekend to hike Precipice Trail, all right? You, some fear there would be healthy, all right? Uh, that's, a, that's a healthy thing. You're, you go out to lunch today and afterwards your legally blind great-grandma offers to drive you home. Fear is going to put the brakes on that. That's healthy. So fear is not always bad. But when fear becomes uh, warped into something that is long-lasting and drawn out, you end up with anxiety. Anxiety is when fear takes over your mind. Anxiety happens in the mind. Anxiety is when fear moves from from the tangible to the hypothetical. Anxiety is when the what ifs of life suffocate your brain. Anxiety is when you can't fall asleep at night or you can't take a nap. Anxiety is when your mind is racing and you can't turn it off. Anxiety is when your imagination runs haywire with no boundaries or limits. Anxiety is when your chest is tight and your breathing shallow and your head is dizzy. It's when your lungs speed up to a frenetic pace and your heart screams through your skin. I think we've painted a picture. Let me give you a definition for depression. Depression, by definition, is severe despondency and dejection. Severe despondency and dejection. 
typically felt over a period of time and accompanied by feelings of hopelessness and inadequacy. Just like fear, because don't equate sadness with depression, by the way, okay? Because just like fear at some level, fear can be healthy, sorrow's the same way. Grief, lament, that kind of pain. Those are not all unhealthy emotions. They make us human. But when sorrow stretches out for long periods of time, you begin to experience depression. Depression's when sorrow has become a way of life. When joy and hope and life are snuffed out of your soul, when you're sad for no reason at all. We said last week, some people wake up happy, some wake up sad. When no matter how hard you try, you fight, you work, you can't pull yourself out of a bad mood. That's where you tend to live most of your life. When the day grows worse with each passing hour, when family and friends are distant, when you are tired all the time, when dreams and desires for the future die and all motivation and energy is just gone, when life is really, really horrible, even when it isn't, depression is emotional. It infects the realm of the soul. So why is it that most people who deal with anxiety also deal with depression and vice versa? Because anxiety and depression are linked in this vicious symbiotic web of codependency. The two are connected because the mind and the soul are connected. In the Old Testament, King Solomon speaks of anxiety in the heart of man. And the word heart means inner part, thoughts, consciousness. So in, the, in our modern English, when we, in, in, our, in modern culture, when we hear the word heart, uh, the, the Hebrew word there means your, your feelings and your thinking. So to the ancient Hebrews, the heart was the seat of the thought. In today's language, we call that the mind. I don't know if you're confused yet, but it's a little confusing. So when the ancient Hebrews said heart, they meant the well of your thinking. It's that part of you where, the, where you bleed internally, uh, where there's anxiety in your thoughts and your imaginations. Then the result is depression in your emotions and your feelings. So what you begin to experience in your mind finds its way into your heart. The point is how we think influences how we feel. So make sure you catch that. How you think, your thoughts, imaginations, mental patterns, influences, shapes, sometimes determines how you feel. So your emotions, your feelings, your mood. That's why anxiety and, de and depression are often inseparable. <clears throat> I don't know about you, but um, I don't enjoy yard work. I, I really don't. I don't mind shoveling snow. I really, for the most part, I don't. Maybe not in April, but I don't mind shoveling snow. But I'm not a fan of working in the dirt. Um, I don't know. I guess apparently there, I've read about this. There are people that enjoy yard work. And some of you have got issues beyond what we can address here this morning. But you like, like working the dirt and digging around plants and weeds and stuff. And I'm not a big fan of that. It's just it's not a hobby for me. It's not a pastime. It's just a necessary evil. It's a chore for me. Uh, so having said that, I have discovered this, okay, because I have been outside before, that uh, in my limited work around things that grow, if I want, I know, I've learned that if I want to get rid of a weed once for all, it's not enough to get rid of the part of the plant that shows above the ground. I need to dig around it and under it and remove it at the roots, roots and all. If I don't want to see that weed again, I got to go get dirt under my fingernails and get below the surface. I would argue that's how it works with anxiety and depression. 
If you want to stamp out melancholy in your life, you want to rip it out once and for all, you have to deal with the, the root of the problem. You have to deal with the root issue. You can't bury the pain and pretend it will not go away. It'll keep coming back. I know it's back-breaking, hard, messy, dirty work, but until you get down under the soil and you actually get into the root issue, you aren't really dealing with the issue. You're dealing with the symptoms and they're going to keep coming back and they keep invading your life and they invade your peace and they invade your contentment and they invade your fulfillment. A couple weeks ago, we spent some time in Psalm 42. Psalm 42 is a prayer for healing from anxiety and depression because we talked about David and his battle with anxiety and depression. So the psalmist asked this probing, brilliant question right in the middle of the psalm. And so in verse 5 of Psalm 42, he says, Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in, put, put your, um, yeah, put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior, my God. And he repeats the question. In modern English, when we want to, like if we're writing something and we want to emphasize it, we can do some things. We can make it in bold print. We can italicize it. We can underline it. We can highlight it. In ancient Hebrew, if you want to emphasize a point, you repeated it. So verse 5 says, Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? In verse 11, it says, Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Next Psalm, verse, in Psalm 43, verse 5. Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? So he says it not once, not twice, but three times. And you might think that our modern worship songs are a little bit repetitive, but this was a song that they sang in worship, okay? So here's the question he's asking that we need to ask. Why? Why am I downcast? Or in our language, why am I depressed? Why am I melancholy? Why am I down and discouraged and tired and grouchy all the time? Why am I disturbed and torn up in the inside? Turmoil, anxiety, worry, fear, concern. Why? Or put it another way, what's causing my anxiety? What's causing me to be depressed? What's the, what's the root issue? What's deep down in my soul that is making me stressed out, nervous, uptight, unhappy, unsatisfied, discontent, fearful, anxious? I would argue that that question is the question. Something deep down in our lives is causing our anxiety. There's a root issue or issues causing the anxiety and depression in our lives. And maybe it's become such a part of our lives that we just begin to accept it because, you know, you think it's normal now. Well, it might be normal for you in your experience, but it's not healthy. It's not the kind of life that Jesus has invited you and called you to live. So the question is, what's the cause? The list of causes is Endless, you give me a thousand different people who battle with anxiety and depression, we'll discover a thousand different causes, right? But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to break the causes down for the, just for some of our time here this morning for the sake of this kind of a, of a conversation that's really one way. I'm going to break this down, the causes down, into two very broad elastic categories, okay? And this might make you uncomfortable. I've demonstrated in this series I'm okay with you being uncomfortable because uh, you think you're uncomfortable come try to say this to a room of people. It's, <laughs> we're all uncomfortable, okay? So I'm just saying this. I want you to hang with me through this. Don't think, don't jump to a conclusion partway. Th- let me go all the way through, wrap it up. Then if uh, you think I'm off base, I would love to hear from you. Um, I think there are two very broad categories of causes of anxiety and depression. I'm just calling them sins and struggles, Okay? By sins, I mean blatant 
clear areas of disobedience towards God and the teachings of the Bible. That's what I mean by that. By struggles, I mean patterns built into maybe your DNA, built into your subconscious, built into the, in your environment and life experience that are maybe more of a weakness of personality or more just the result of your life experience than it is an act of disobedience, okay? So we're in two different categories. So first of all, let's take a look at sins because we're going to get that out of the way and then we're going to get to something else. So specifically, I'm going to just want to give you some examples of sins that a lot of us struggle with on a regular basis. And this list is not designed, number one, to be the entire list. And number two, it's not designed to make you feel guilty and terrible about yourself. This is just to get us thinking, to begin to expose the broken places in our souls, maybe into, towards a path of, of discovering what's causing the anxiety and the depression that we wrestle with. So let's get into this list. list uh, sin, number one, this is under sins, number one, bitterness. In the Lord's Prayer in uh, Matthew 6, Jesus says, Forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. Then, immediately after the prayer ends, he says, If you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not, do not forgive others their sins, your heavenly Father will not forgive your sins. Jesus takes forgiveness really, really seriously. He forgives murderers and thieves and adulterers and narcissists, and he asks his followers to do the same. Hanging on the cross, stripped naked, bleeding, dying, he looks at the Romans who are executing him and says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And you're like, oh, they knew what they were doing. Doesn't matter. That's shocking, scandalous, provocative grace. And Jesus asks us, and his expectation of us is that we would take that grace, turn it around, and show that same grace to everyone in our lives. People who hurt us, people who wound us, people who abuse us, who persecute us, who betray us. Father, forgive them. Oh, but you have no idea the pain they've caused me, the, the scars they inflicted. Father, forgive them. But I want justice, I want vindication, I want them to suffer like... Father, forgive them. There are no loopholes. Jesus calls his followers to forgive people who hurt, wound, and betray us, period. Oh, but it's really hard to forgive. Yep. Yep. The flip side is when we disobey Jesus in this area, when we withhold forgiveness, the results are infectious. Unforgiveness leads to bitterness. Bitterness leads to anger and hurt and shame. And memories start to haunt you and control you and take over your soul like an ominous dark cloud suffocating the light, right? The author of Hebrews uh, in chapter 12 says, Make every effort to live in peace with everyone. See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. Bitterness is like that infectious weed and it, it grows up in the hearts and minds of people who have been hurt and wronged. At first we don't see it because, you know, we're entitled to a little bit of anger, you know, but like a weed it starts to cause trouble and it chokes out life and it chokes out love and joy and peace and help just like a weed strangles that thing you're trying to grow. I honestly think one of, I put this at the top of the list on purpose because I think one of the most common causes of depression is bitterness. And it, bitterness comes from withholding forgiveness. 
it's almost always a factor. And most of the time, listen, this is the hard truth, it's related to family. And we talked a few weeks ago about family of origin. Most of our unforgiving spirit, our unwillingness to forgive, our withholding of forgiveness comes from an unresolved issue in our family of origin. Abuse, neglect, divorce, unhealthy, unloving parents. So when you leave this unchecked in, in, in your soul, bitterness creeps in and tears you apart. And at first, it feels like an armor because it's like, it's like protecting you, it's shielding you, you can keep things at a distance and it feels like a comfort. But then it turns on you and your armor becomes your prison. So we need to forgive. We can just start with because Jesus commands us to. It's really not an option for the follower of Jesus. He said, if you do not forgive, your father will not forgive your sin, plain and simple. Who has, um, and you're like, what does that mean exactly? I'm like, I think it means if you do not forgive, your father will not forgive your sins. That's just how simple I am. So who has hurt you? Who, who has wronged you? And have you forgiven them? Have you really honestly forgiven them? Now, listen, forgiveness is a process, okay? It's not a one and done. So you're like, well, how can I know then if I've really forgiven them? I feel like I have, but I'm not sure. I would just ask, do they still hold power over you? Do they control your joy? Do you honestly, as God sees your heart, do you honestly wish them well? Yeah, it's a high standard, isn't it? So we have to let go of our anger. We have to let go of our hurt. Of our hurt. We got, it's like a weed. We've got to rip it out, dig it up by the roots. And I know this is hard stuff, and I'm well aware that this is just the tip of the proverbial iceberg, but I get that. But my point is we need to forgive. That needs to be a characteristic of the way that we approach life. So number one is forgiveness. We're talking about sins that could be the cause of anxiety and depression. Number two is sexual immorality. And you're like, oh, you're just picking all your top. No, not, you know, these are all the big ones. Well, there might be a reason why we think they're the big ones. Let me read the words of the Apostle Paul. He wrote this letter to uh, the church in the city of Corinth. Corinth was home to the temple of Aphrodite, the Greek goddess of beauty and fertility and sexuality. Historians believe there were as many as a thousand sex slaves associated with this temple. Sexual depravity was built into Corinth's culture. And the followers of Jesus in that city were getting drawn into Corinth's culture. It's where they'd come from, and they were being drawn back in. So Paul writes to the church in Corinth to clear some things up. <laughs> they, they had a lot to clear up. Here's what he says in 1 Corinthians 6. He says, flee from sexual immorality. All other sins people commit are outside their bodies, but those who sin sexually sin against their own bodies. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, who you have received from God? You are not your own, Paul says. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Paul says, flee sexual immorality. He doesn't tell us to fight it. The text could be translated, run for your lives. Sexual immorality corrupts us from the inside out. We were built to be temples of the living God. Immorality defiles and defaces God's temple, pushing his presence out and creating distance. 
And sexual uh, immorality is a complex, multifaceted conversation that we don't have time to get into this morning. But for the point we're making, let's just say sexual immorality definitely ranks high on the list of the things that are primary causes of depression. Next is worry. And you're like, wait, I thought you were talking about sins. Yep. Here's where it gets confusing, because anxiety is like, a, it functions like a verb and a noun, right? It's like to be anxious is, is an act. It's a state of being. Uh, so just for the sake of clarity, I'm going to use two different words. So let's say worry is the act uh, and anxiety is the state of being, okay? So worry is when you freak out and you abdicate mental self-control and you plunge into the endless repetitive cycle of what-ifs and fears about the future. Worry is sin. And the results are catastrophic for the soul. Because worry leads to anxiety. The state of being where fear, nerves, pounding pulse rates, tight breathing in your chest becomes a permanent fixed lifestyle. And for some of us, anxiety is like a part of our identity, right? But who wants to live like that? So as, G, as usual, Jesus shows us a better way. This is what I love about all of Jesus' teaching. In his most famous teaching, right in the middle of it, in Matthew chapter 6, he's delivering what we've come to know, uh, the Sermon on the Mount, which is his manifesto for the kingdom of God that he's ushering in, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. He says, do not worry about your life. He's showing us life as God intended, the way that we were built to function, to breathe, and to move through life. God built us to live in peace, not anxiety, which means we have to learn to trust, not worry. I read this this week, and I, I think I like this. He said, it, uh, I can't remember who the writer was. It was a, a blog I was reading. He said, anxiety is temporary atheism. Ooh, I know, that's like, no, not me. Because think about it, anxiety is when you stop trusting God and stop believing that there is a God who is real and aware and loving and involved and able to do anything in your life. And when you worry, you suspend faith and you stop believing in what is true. Next he says, do not worry, saying what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear. The pagans run after all these things. Your heavenly father knows you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. And he points out something profound, that anxiety exposes idolatry. Because we, anxiety exposes idolatry. And here's what I mean by that. We worry about what we worship. We worry about the things that we are passionate about. The things we center our lives around. If you're worried about money, you know, paying the bills and making the promotion and closing the deal and buying the house, maybe, maybe, maybe money is your God. No, I don't have any money. It doesn't matter. You don't have to have money for it to be your God. If you're worried about what people think of you and, you know, gossip and whispers and fashion and image and conversations where, you know, you're second guessing and the things that you present yourself, the things that you present to be true of yourself on social media. It could be that your reputation is your God. Maybe you're more concerned with what people think of you than what God thinks of you. If you're worried, this is, this is a weird one and I wasn't sure to leave it in here, but I think I got to because I think if you're worried about your kids and their grades and their performance and their schools and their 
teachers' reviews and sports and their, even their health, maybe you have turned your family into a god. This is why Jesus considers worry sin. He's always calling us back to worship, to make God the center, to seek him first in his kingdom. And you think about it this way, then worry shows us what we're really passionate about. It exposes idolatry in all of its various forms in our lives. And Jesus tells us to seek first his kingdom, meaning that we should put our heart's passions into his kingdom, not the fleeting temporary things that we spend so much of our time worrying about. Verse 34 of Matthew 6, Jesus says, Therefore do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. And I don't know about you, but I hear a little smirk in his tone. Because like almost everybody worries about tomorrow, about the what ifs, all the different scenarios where life could go off track. And Jesus calls us to step away from those worries, those idols, and trust him. Next on the list, I'm just lumping some stuff together and calling it unconfessed habitual sin. King David's a well-known man in the Bible. His life's the story of great exploits and tragic failures. I mean, some really huge blunders. I mean, adultery and murder. And in the end, he repents, but not right away. So at first, after he sins, he hides, he lies, and he covers up his sins. In Psalm 32, he writes about his unconfessed sin. He says, When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you while you may be found. In David's case, in his story, you read about a hidden sin was sapping his energy. It's leaking out of his body in aches and pains. Because the human soul was not designed to carry a crushing load of guilt. God built us to live in transparency and vulnerability, not in hiding. And one time sins are bad enough, those blunders and mistakes and failures, they result in a certain kind of pain. But ongoing hidden sin is a thousand times worse because it numbs us. And slowly but surely your body adapts to the pain and it creates calluses around your soul. And you stop feeling God's presence. You stop feeling the Holy Spirit's conviction. And you kind of stop feeling alive. After David confront, he was confronted about his sin, and he confesses and he prays, and here's his prayer in Psalm 51. It says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, and restore to me the joy of your salvation. He confesses his sin to God, he confesses to Nathan the prophet, and it leads to joy. The, the habitual, regular, rhythmic practice of confession is the key to the life of the soul. We have to keep that open between us and God. You open up and you're honest with Him. You admit you have a problem, you repent, you walk away from that, and you ask for His help, and you invite Him in, and you move on. Years later, David's son, who we've already quoted, King Solomon, writes this in Proverbs 28. It says, Whoever conceals their sins does not prosper. But the one who confesses and renounces them finds mercy. We're talking about sins that could be under the surface, the cause of anxiety and depression. Let's talk about this one. Let's talk about the sins of others. Oh, yeah, let's talk. Let's get comfortable now, right? We're going to talk about other people. 
We're talking about sins where you, because the list so far is sins where you're responsible. <laughs> and in a blame-happy culture, it, it's, it, it's hard, we, but we need to own up to our own sin. And the victim mentality tends to put us on a, on a road to anger and bitterness and unforgiveness rather than responsibility and repentance. But having said that, there are sins in which you are the victim. We live in a really messy kind of upside-down world. The collateral damage of Satan's rebellion against God is catastrophic. You and I feel that. We live with that. There are millions of victims of evil. Maybe you're one of them. Abuse, neglect, betrayal, adultery. I've been a pastor a long time now, and I've had a front-row seat to watch pain play out in people's lives. And I, I, words kind of failed uh, to express my, it's not empathy, but it's uh, maybe solidarity with you, okay? I'm so sorry for your pain. I have no simplistic formula for you. I do have a few thoughts, though. Here's a stark reality. One of the primary causes of depression is uh, sin, but it's not always your sin. Feel a little bit better about that? <laughs> That's why the gospel is good news. Because sure, the gospel includes an element of justice. There's no doubt about that. But the gospel is more than justice. The gospel is also mercy. The gospel is about a God who goes after broken-hearted people. So please don't misunderstand me. This doesn't mean that your pain doesn't mean the way in which you were wronged or hurt or where pain was inflicted on you, doesn't mean that that is God's will or part of his plan for your life. I don't believe that everything that happens is part of God's plan for your life. I'm sorry if that messes with your view of uh, God's sovereignty and all that. I'd love to sit down and have a conversation with you because I'm just, I wrestle with this all the time. It's a topic for another day, no doubt. But I believe Jesus grieves with you and he suffers with you. What happened to you was not, was not God. When evil happens to you, that's not God. God is good. God hates evil. But God is there. In the darkest parts of your story, God is there. I think of the story of Joseph in the Old Testament. One dark experience after another, and Joseph kept acting as someone who believed that the Lord was with him because the Lord was with him. And I believe God is there in the darkest parts of your stories doing the work of redemption. Because God has the power to take whatever sin or whatever was done to you and to take that evil, and it'll always be evil, but to make it part of his story of redemption in your life. God takes ugly, horrendous things and says, you know what, that hurts, but we can use that. We can make that matter. All right, let's move on. We're talking about sins and struggles that 
can be the cause, the underlying root of our anxiety and depression. Let's, let's, let's set this, that's enough of the sins thing. Let's talk about struggles. Sins are blatant, clear acts of disobedience. Struggles, on the other hand, are patterns that are either built into you or they're more of a bent or a propensity in you. Sins are clear, black and white. You, you, you can kind of know what's right and what's wrong and you simply need to stop that. But struggles are, are nebulous, okay? They're vague, they're harder to pick out, easy to miss. So let's unpack a few common struggles that lead to anxiety and depression. Again, not an exhaustive list just to get you thinking. So first I'm going to start with this one, perfectionism. Struggled with where to put this on the list, by the way. No, really. Where, does, it, does it belong on the sin category or in the struggle category? I could argue that perfectionism makes us the idol we worship. But then that sounds like my next point. So it's just, the whole thing's vague. Let's talk about it. Perfectionists. First of all, you know who you are. You know what's wrong with everything and everyone. I'm just reading my notes right now. <laughs> Nothing's good enough. Nobody measures up. Especially not yourself. That may not be the image you project, but inside, that's your deal. The problem is when all you see is what's wrong, what needs improvement, you end up really unhappy and discontent because, well, everything has room for improvement. Perfectionism is a recipe for misery. I believe in excellence. Perfectionism is a worthless pursuit. Because we are broken people living in a broken world, meaningless, listen, nobody is perfect. Don't look for heaven on earth, it's not here. We live in a fallen, broken warped kind of world so I think perfectionists need to realize that life is messy stop critiquing stop picking everything apart stop analyzing life is not perfect end of story next one on the list of struggles and it's closely related is narcissism narcissists are people with an inordinate obsession with themselves sometimes it shows up as self-pity and insecurity not always Sometimes it manifests itself as, as just flat-out vanity and self-love, you know? Both are twisted forms of a self-focused world. It, it's, why, uh, it's why most groups of friends are homogenous. It's why we hang out with people who dress like us, act like us, vote like us, listen to the same music as us, like the same movies as us. Why? Because we love people who remind us of ourselves, Narcissism is self-love and it shows up as a self-focused living. We only think about ourselves, our plans, our desires, our money. What is, what am, how am I going to benefit? What am I going to get out of this? Me, me, me. And it leads to misery. In place of narcissism, the scriptures teach that humility is the way of God. The Apostle Paul says in Philippians 2, he says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. So don't misunderstand uh, humility. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. Paul says the way to make our joy complete is by living others-focused as opposed to self-focused. Living others-focused, humble lives. Next, struggles, guilt. Here's the thing about guilt. It's like it's always there. 
It's like, a, like when you were a kid and you had a monster under your bed. You turn on the lights and there's nowhere to be found, but you know it's there. Somewhere lurking, stalking. You close your eyes and you bury your head under the covers, but it won't go away. Listen, for many of us, guilt stalks our lives for years. We can't forget what we did a year ago, two years ago, five years ago, 20 years ago. The lie, the affair, the neglect, the abortion, the the abuse, the memory just haunts us. Well, let me just say, that's no way to live. It's just not what Jesus wants for his followers. So forgiveness, we've already talked about when we, on the giving end, but forgiveness is something that has to be received as well. So yes, you need to repent and turn away from your sin and confess it and get out in the open, no more secrets. And if you don't do that, guilt will chase you forever. But then you need to hear and absorb and believe and own and take hold of and trust what? The work of Christ on the cross. The forgiveness that you've been offered. The cross wipes the slate clean. It, it covers everything. The cross, it's like it builds a coffin and buries your sin six feet under. Again, Apostle Paul, Romans 5, says, Since we've been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we've gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. So, so the question is, do you believe that? You know, grace is a past event. We have been justified. We have peace with God. We have gained access. But it's also something you stand in. You have to believe and trust and stand in the work of Jesus on the cross and lay down the shackles of guilt and shame, walk in freedom and new life, and believe in grace. The next struggle I'm just calling, um, again, it's kind of a catch-all, I'm just calling it life in the here and now. Because you know that can be a struggle. I don't know if you can identify with that at all. Right here, right now. The only thing real is the present. You're like, well, my past. No, the past is a memory. You're running that through all kinds of filters. The future is a shot in the dark. The moment is where we live. The problem is many of us spend more time in our minds in the past or in the future than we do in the present. And it robs us of joy in the moment. And don't get me wrong, it's good to look back and remember things and to think about God's faithfulness and the story of your life and to learn from your mistakes. All that's good. It's healthy to look forward. I'm a planner. That's all fine. And to seek God's, you know, for vision for your future, that's good. But we live in the present. We need to be fully aware and fully awake in the moment. Too much time spent in the past leads to depression. Regrets, bad memories, Shame, guilt, bitterness, old wounds, all the lies that we've come to believe about the past. Too much time spent in the future leads to anxiety. What if? What if that happens? What if this falls through? Fear, worry, concern, it's all in the future. There's, there's no productive point to guilt about the past or worry about the future. It doesn't accomplish anything positive. Look down at your phone or your watch right now. Look down at your whatever it is, however you keep time. What's the date? Today? 25th. August 25th, right. Four months from today is what, Mom? Right. The time is, see, but she's in the future. She just, it's all healthy, though. She's good. Um, today is August 25th. It's 10.54 a.m. Live there. 
Yeah, but what about... Hmm. Next on my list is ingratitude, and I'm nearly done. Ingratitude. And I would say it's nasty companion self-pity. The most uh, influential culture-shaping document in American history, uh, maybe in the, I don't know, maybe in the, yeah, I'll say in American history, is the Declaration of Independence. Built into the ethos of American society are three unalienable rights. They are? Life, liberty, Life, liberty and what? The wording to me is very ironic. And uh, pursuit of happiness. It's almost like the architects of modern democracy said, we guarantee you an opportunity for life. We will guard, we commit to protect and guard your liberty. Happiness, good luck with chasing that. <laughs> it's a pursuit. We're not guaranteed happiness by the Declaration of Independence. It doesn't guarantee us anything, actually. It's just a statement. It's a declaration. America is a social experiment founded on this premise, which includes the pursuit of happiness. Hundreds of millions of Americans are living in that and chasing down happiness. Money, materialism, sex, romance, religion, family, whatever. Oh, so many of those things are pursuits of the same human craving, joy. But apart from Jesus, we never get there. Some of us have, have come to realize that. That people spend decades searching high and low for happiness and never land at joy. And in an odd twist of fate, America, for all of her life and liberty, is one of the most depressed nations in the world when you look at the statistics. Many of us are mad at God because somehow we think God owes us. We deserve happiness. We deserve a good, comfortable life, free from pain and suffering, because we have rights, right? We're Americans. But when you reorient yourself to a, a biblical worldview, the only posture left to take is gratitude. If all of life is a gift, how could we help but thank God for that? There are entire psalms that have no other purpose than thanksgiving. No requests, no prayers, just gratitude. Psalm 107 is one of them. It says, give thanks to the Lord for his good. His love endures forever. The opposite of gratitude is entitlement. It's thinking God owes you. But listen, God is not a cosmic vending machine who is at our beck and call. He's the creator of the universe. He owes us nothing. Everything we have is on loan from God. So rather than moaning about what we don't have, let's be thankful for what we do have. Do you have money in your pocket? Even a few singles or spare change? Over 3 billion people alive today on planet Earth live on less than $2 a day. Do you have clean drinking water? Nearly a billion people on the planet today do not have access to clean, safe drinking water. Do you have breakfast this morning or you plan to have lunch after church? More than 30,000 children die every day from hunger and malnutrition. Are you reading the words in front of you in your hand or on the screen? One out of every five humans on the planet is illiterate. Gratitude's all about perspective, right? Something is causing our anxiety. Something is causing our depression. Deep in your soul, something is out of alignment and needs to be set right. 
And we start by diagnosing the causes with the, the help of the Scripture, with the help of the Holy Spirit, with the help of friends and family and counselors and doctors. And from there, it starts to get a little clearer. In the context of this morning's teaching, I want to offer a next step, okay? And it's repentance. And hang with me here on this, okay? Because that, that word's taken on a churchy meaning. But healing starts with repentance. It'd be really easy to get off track here and to jump to conclusions about what I'm about to say and slip into some sadistic, self-suffocating mantra of like guilt and defeat and more depression. That's not my point. Let's not misunderstand the, the true nature of repentance. Authentic biblical repentance is a life-giving art that renews the entire soul. In Hebrew, which is the language of the Old Testament, the Jewish scriptures, the word repentance comes from a word that can be translated to return home. To the biblical writers, home was the Garden of Eden. Life as God intended. The creation in rhythm with the creator. Eden literally means delight. The garden was the place of shalom, peace, wholeness, joy, life, vitality, delight. We are a long, long way from Eden. To repent is to return to Eden, to go back home, to live as God intended, to step back into the patterns and ways of living that God built us for, to live in harmony and alignment with the God who made us. In Greek, which is the language of the New Testament, the word repentance comes from two words. The first one means to renew and restore, and the second means to think. So metanoia literally means to change your thinking. To repent is to think about the world in a new way, to view the world in a different light. Some people think of repentance as a one-time act, as something you do when you're saved, you know, and depending on what your church background is, you've attached meaning to that word, but it may not be the whole meaning. For followers of Jesus, repentance is a way of life. Jesus puts it this way. He says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. Every day we are prone to slip off the path, the way of Jesus, into a broken, twisted pattern of living and thinking, moving further and further from Eden. But Jesus invites us to repent, to return home, to live his way, to change the way that we think about the world. He puts it this way in Mark 1. He says, the time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. So God's up to something in the story of humanity. And because of that, Jesus calls us to repent, to return home. Acts 3 tells an interesting story. The apostle Peter stands up in front of the entire city of Jerusalem and preaches the gospel, and he speaks of Jesus' death and his resurrection. And in straight-up bare-bones language, uh, he points out the Israelites' sin. And then he says this. He says, repent then, turn to God, so that your sins may be wiped out. The times of refreshing may come from the Lord, that he may send the Messiah who's been appointed for you, even Jesus. And heaven must receive him until the time comes for God to restore everything, as he promised long ago through his holy prophets, until the time comes for God to restore everything. That's a really compelling vision of the future. I love the sequence of Peter's language, because in verse 19, he tells the people to repent, return home, live as God intended back in Eden. Then he reminds us that repentance leads to times of refreshing from the Lord. Are you okay? Are you, you find yourself craving times of refreshment. Repent, return home. Repentance is a path to life. It's easy to forget that God wants us to be joyful. 
The way of Jesus is the best possible way to live. Obedience is not a somber, heavy religious duty. Obedience is like a mouthful of crisp, clean water or a breath of fresh ocean air. The way of Jesus is refreshing. Peter says repentance is about the future. And the future pushes me to hope. I think Jesus is up to something. I think he's about to renew the entire universe. But first he's starting with us. We are his new creation. We're microcosms of his renewal of all things. And when we repent and return to live as God intended back in the Eden, we get glimpses, we get echoes, we get glimmers and hints and shadows and pictures of the future. The day when Jesus returns and shouts over the entire earth, I am making everything new. There's coming a day when we get to return to Eden. When we're back in God's presence for eternity. When your sorrow and sighing will fade away and turn into singing and everlasting joy. It's why the Apostle John, when he was writing about the new Eden, said God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain because the old order of things has passed away. The old order of things, anxiety, depression, sorrow, fear, will pass away. So it's just a matter of time. But for now, we wait. We lean into the future with a living, moving hope. We repent, we return home, and here today, the, in the art of repentance, we catch glimpses of the future that awaits us. Listen to the words of this song. I've been strong and I've been broken within a moment. I've been faithful and I've been reckless at every bend. I've held everything together and watched it shatter. I've stood tall and I have crumbled in the same wrestled and I have trembled towards surrender She's my heart adrift and drifted home again Plundered blessing till I've been desperate to find redemption But every time I turn around you're still
You love me as you find 